Welcome to CYC Podcast, Discussions on Child and Youth Care. I'm Wolfgang Vashon. We're continuing the conversation series I heard last month, coming out of the recently published special issue of the International Journal of Child, Youth, and Family Studies. And this special issue is titled Possibilities, Futures, and Queer Worldmaking in Child and Youth Care, which, as I mentioned last month, is an open access journal, meaning it doesn't cost anything to read any of the articles in the issue. And I encourage you to check it out. You can just search for it online or I'll put a link in the show notes. Today, I'm speaking with Longoria, another author from the issue. Their piece is called Moving Queer Visibilities into Identity-Sustaining Practices in Child and Youth Care Towards Queered Futures. I'm particularly interested in this conversation because as the title indicates, they invite us really to consider the relationship between teachers and child and youth care practitioners, CYC education and teacher education. And that's an area that we have not taken up very much in uh, here in North America. It's a bit different in Europe with social pedagogy, but certainly North America, it's an under considered conversation. So with that, welcome Longoria. Thank you so much for joining me today. Could I ask you to start by introducing yourself? Absolutely. I am Longoria. Professionally, I go by A Longoria, but call me Longoria, please. Thank you. You honor my self-determination when you use they, them pronouns to refer to me. I am speaking to you from the traditional lands of the Lummi and Nooksack people and Coast Salish people that have been here since time immemorial, also called Bellingham, Washington. And um, along with that land acknowledgement, I'd love to just invite everyone to think of ways that um, we can really confront, as Tuck and Yang call, settler moves to innocence, and um, truly think about how we are working toward um, honoring and um, seeding lands and making sure that we are working toward Indigenous sovereignty, which really does include epistemological sovereignty as well. This conversation that we're having today is, is, is about coming out of your article and, and coming up out of looking at queered futures. But you talk about identity sustaining practices, and I'm curious how you think about land acknowledgements as as identity sustaining or as identity challenging or as, as oppressive. I'm, I'm hoping we can speak more deeply a little bit later about identity sustaining pedagogies, but one of the, one of the core practices that my co-author Francisco Rios and I have around this idea of identity sustaining pedagogies is empowering other identities. So while I don't have an indigenous identity per se, I also feel it's important to work toward helping others sustain their identities, which includes Indigenous people. You know, I, I know it's really a really common practice increasingly to have sort of land acknowledgements or something sort of similar to land acknowledgements that people are familiar with, especially in academic spaces. I find it a really important thing to also invite folks in those moments to you know, rather than sort of doing a sort of compulsory performativity there to really think about, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have some kind of reconciliation, A, for honoring 
the sovereignty that has been taken away from indigenous people historically and contemporarily, but also how do we help indigenous folks remain who they are? And as a sort of um, related note, you know, I think identity-sustaining pedagogies, we're really getting into the weeds here, but... Let's do some gardening. You know, identity-sustaining pedagogies or uh, identity-sustaining practices is, of course, the more academic way of, of talking about this. But um, I've really started to move toward trying to make it a, a little bit more in reach for folks. And so I've started to say, how do we remain who we are? Mm. How do we help other folks remain who we are or who they are? Um, and particularly folks who have been historically marginalized, who have been historically excluded from the spaces that we find ourselves in, whether that is a CYC space, a schooling space, um, in the university and academic settings, um, but also for, for we queer people, for we people of color, how do we remain who we are in spite of all of the, the different forces that, um, you know, from professional expectations to contextual, you know, sort of considerations that that are really telling us to, you know, have a certain gender presentation or, you know, to not speak about our, our cultural contexts, to not speak our languages, to not acknowledge really our, our sort of ancestral context. So how do we remain who we are, I think is a, a really, um, a really key concept to my work and, and my emerging work, I should say, and, and really um, infused how, how I wrote the article for the special issue. And I guess on that note too, I, I should say, how do I remain who I am? Well, who am I? Um, I am currently an assistant professor of secondary education here at Western Washington University in the Woodring College of Education. That's a mouthful. And um, I'm also the director of our master in teaching program here. And I, I really feel first and foremost, a teacher educator. I'm a former classroom teacher. I taught high school humanities. I really love training teachers. I really love being just a small blip in, in their, their narrative that they're writing, their story that they're writing as a teacher that, that serves young people. It also just is quite special for me to, to be who I am as a Chinese Mexican Capricorn, <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as, a, as a queer person, as a non-binary person, as a gender queer person, to, to also be in this role and to be able to be out, to be actively finding ways to remain who I am when, you know, historically people like me have not often been in this role. And so that's, um, that's also a very special part, I think, of how I come to this work. Teacher education is, is really, it has my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I often say that the, the only thing better than teaching child and youth care practitioners is practicing child and youth care. You know, and there's, there's obviously lots of collapsing between the two throughout. I mean, one of the very first conversations we had when we met a couple of years ago was around this idea of of identity and uh, presence, and that's central to to your project as an educator, as as a, a thinker, as a researcher, as a writer. What does it do for you in relationship to your teaching to bring yourself wholly into your teaching? Why is it? Why do you think it's an important element of your 
pedagogy in the in 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 the classroom yeah i i think for for several different reasons i think one is it's it's a kind of modeling when we're working with young people when we're working with children and youth directly in schools and i'm i'm lucky enough to be a teacher educator that can work in school settings even in the pandemic and so to be visible and present among young people but also for my graduate students from for the 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 teacher education students that i teach to be able to be out not just as a queer person but to be out about my identities as a chinese mexican person that i think is an important model for them to see that someone actually can be visible can be out and and indeed use their identities and not sort of i don't know if compromise is the best word but to sort of compromise or or, or you know hide their identities to live out some sort of what i think of as a false ideal of what professionalism is and really i think it's important that especially for those of us who have historically marginalized identities we don't stop being who we are when we we get onto the the grounds of our cyc side or our school or our university we're still who we are and it, it perhaps is then an act of resistance for us to insist on being who we are and, and for me that means that sometimes i will drop a little bit of spanish into what i'm describing and i don't necessarily have to explain that you know i heard some chisme today i don't need to say to my students that oh and chisme means gossip or apologize perhaps for using a word from my culture that i use often outside of the classroom and so i think in that sort of uncompromising practice of sustaining who I am. That's, of course, also a model. It's also an act of resistance. But it also helps me stay who I am. It helps me not start to take on a sort of performance, perhaps, of an educator that I frankly, I don't want to be. And I don't think our, our children and youth need educators who are who are fake, <laughs> who are not who they are and not actively being who they are, because that ultimately is then a message to a young person with a marginalized identity that there's somehow something disordered about their identities that aren't the dominant culture. And, you know, the dominant culture isn't just whiteness. Um, it's also able-bodiedness. It's also cisgendered. It's also heterosexual. Um, and so it's important for we who do have identities that are not always visible to, um, to provide that model and, and show, I think, that you can actually exist in these spaces and be, and be visible and, and still be professional and still, still practice this profession that we have. And, and I'll also say, add here too, and I, I write a bit about this in the article. There's also something, and I'm still, this is an idea that's that's still kind of emerging in my, in my overall work, but there's something corporeal, I think, about what we, particularly as queer, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or queer BIPOC people, there's something corporeal or something from our bodies that I think is inherently pedagogical 
there is something about us us existing in a space as a practitioner, as a professional, that teaches others, particularly when we are visible. And of course, that that bears that the conditions have to be there for us to be safely visible. We are free from danger. We are free from ostracization. We are free to to be who we are and still keep our jobs. And those are like, of course, societal contexts and professional contexts, etc. But there is there still is some kind of corporal pedagogy. Our bodies are teaching others simply by existing in the space. It's not a passive corporeal pedagogy, but there is something about us being sometimes the first or the only in a space and teaching others about our existence, about people like us, and that indeed infuses how we teach, how we practice. And um, that's something I'm still kind of wrestling with. And I, 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 I hope readers um, you know, might take up that from the article as well and, and think alongside that with me and, and think how that might look like in a practitioner context. But that's sort of the another dimension of what it means to sustain one's identity. Yeah, this idea of the corporeal, it, 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 it was a, for me, a, quite a profound concept, I thought, because historically, or traditionally even, I would say educators, CYCs, the message was, you know, you leave your yourself at the door, like you, you, you are here to serve the other, right? It's not about you. And, and I think child and youth care, you know, sought to challenge that by, by introducing this notion of the self, and you bring the self, and what does the self mean? Yet at the same time, it, there was still tremendous resistance, because there was only certain elements of the self that you could bring. And you, you, you know, bringing one's queer self was, was not acceptable bringing using language that you, you know, your colleagues don't understand was was frowned upon performing queerness performing culture performing identity other than the the, the dominant identity i think was often quite uh quite front of so i think so i think really what you're introducing here is, is quite a a, a radical shift in how we understand the role of the of the educator or of the of the child and youth care practitioner and I, and I think it's I think it really opens up some opportunities um, for us to consider how we how we do exist and how we perform who we who we are and and with that I also uh, I wonder about this does it does it slip into a compulsory performance? Does it does it does it slip into a, um, um, a required performance or an expectation uh, of performing? Oh, we're hiring you as a Chinese Mexican queer non gender binary person, and and you better show up like that. Um, have you have you? I just I wonder. Does it does it become somehow? um limiting or less uh sustaining um identity sustaining and more identity confining ever yeah um yeah let let me take up that first and then i want to i want to circle back to mm -hmm. 
you know, what you brought up and, and what I sometimes call the tyranny of objectivity. Yes. And particularly as a genderqueer person, and um, I, I don't love the term non-binary for me. I don't want to be defined by something that I'm not. Mm-hmm. I have started to at least offer that um, for people to understand what I mean when I say genderqueer, because non-binary, I think, is a term folks that have, have might have heard of more. I I present to the world as masculine. And so I think it's sometimes harder for folks, some folks to not use they them pronouns for me. I have found that when I am presenting a bit more femme, maybe a a really fabulous dangly earring. um, If, you know, I happen to have my nails painted in a bright color, it's, interesting to me that people are are perhaps more willing to use they them pronouns for me Mm. i'm still the same person i'm just not presenting in a way that i think makes sense to folks still very entrenched binary understanding of the world for me and my experience you know i i simply i'm me i'm not even trying to sort of perform in a way that folks are going to accept me more for who I am. I, I, that, that's not kind of how I want to be in this world and in, 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 in the profession, but I could easily see how, if I were performing more explicitly with my queer identity with, I don't even know how I could be more Chinese, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's um, awful and stereotypical indeed. Yes. But but yet, you know, because I don't phenotypically look Chinese, um, I think some people, you know, don't don't immediately see me as Asian American. Perhaps sometimes is a sort of expectation then that I'm gonna, you know, present a certain way or be a certain way, and I, I'm I'm just me. And then probably more related to your question. I think for many folks, they do, when they're the diversity hire, I think that there is a pressure to then come in and be racial justice Jesus, or to Mm. be, um, you know, to be the savior, to be the Messiah um, around um, an institution's past wrongs and current ills. And so we are often expected to be in those DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion spaces, if not lead them. And that's a common refrain that we hear from folks with historically marginalized identities, particularly in the academy. From my own practice, I don't tend to lead those initiatives. I don't tend to sit on DEI committees. For me, I think the best way to effect true change is to be on those committees that are actually making up those decisions. Um, DEI tends to be sort of, um, I mean, my read of it is DEI work or committees tend to have a more consultative work, uh, a role. But what about like curriculum committees or discipline action committees or, you know, the not attractive, doesn't look great on a CV, but like that's where real decisions are made. And so I I think often we as um, historically marginalized people were expected to fill roles in those explicitly 
social justice focused spaces. But really, I believe true change is effected through the, the things that aren't as sexy, you know, the, the things that we that are boring, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but, um, you know, and that so that then also let's just say we're going up for tenure review or we're, you know, our performance for whatever reason is being assessed or, you know, even popular opinion, you know, we, we folks with historically marginalized identities are often, you know, judged by, well, why aren't they on the DEI committee? Why aren't we leading these other efforts? Because those of course are more visible. If we're truly working for lasting change, I think we need to be in those boring roles. I suspect you and I don't find curriculum committees terribly boring, <laughs> but they might be, they might seem boring yeah. to, to, to many. <laughs> Returning to the, the theme of this special issue around querying child and youth care or in your, in your case, querying teacher ed, what does it look like to, to queer those spaces, queer the, the curriculum committees, queer the, the classroom, you know, to, to queer child and youth care, to queer pedagogy, what, what does, what does that look like? And, and maybe we even need to start by taking a step back and, and having you uh, talk about how you use, because in, in your article, you use queer, you use queering, you use queered or queer ed. Um, and, and so perhaps we can begin with, what do you mean by those terms? And then what does it look like to queer such spaces? Right. Yeah. So from the title, and it's kind of just my riff. Um, I don't think it's terribly original, but <laughs> <laughs> but you are. <laughs> it's sort of my my kind of riff on on this idea of queerness as a verb, sort of queering as a verb. You know, I, I also just love the parenthetical ed because I'm in teacher ed, I'm in education, and so there's just sort of a lovely little you know queer joke in there too that it's indeed weird ed um, <laughs> but you know that that verb to queer i think is pretty central to this work how do we especially collectively how do we queer our work and i think even stepping back so what do we mean by queer and that will open up a whole can of worms there too but um you know i'm gonna sort of borrow from from how some folks have envisioned queer in you know the literature is you know queerness has a, a kind of relationship with normalcy that we define normalcy by that which is queer they may be even like diametrically opposed and we define queerness by what is normal and so when we are queering the normal we're doing the work of queer queering so we are doing the active work of that verb um, so what does it mean to push on normalcy and in some instances, it might be like, what does it mean to push on the dominant culture? And so this is where I, I, I might, I think it might be helpful to kind of circle back to this idea of, you know, the, the tyranny of objectivity, those ideas around having to be perhaps identity neutral, um, having to be objective in a space, to be professional, um, to, you know, still bring yourself, but only certain parts of yourself because there is this idea, I think, mm -hmm. and I imagine in both CYC and in, and in teacher ed, 
this idea that in order to be professional, you have to not give your opinion. You have to not bring fully who you are in this idea of being sort of a neutral party. But the reality is we, we do bring our identities. We do bring our biases and our cultural lenses. And, and I, really, I really take to heart and, and kind of riff on what Sandra Harding wrote a long time ago about the idea that we actually strengthen this notion of objectivity by declaring our biases, by actually looking at how they influence our biases and how we are looking at phenomena, et cetera. And so to, to that end, I think it's, it, it's, it's just vitally important for us to, to find ways to, to bring our fullest self into our work, and that will assist us in that verb to queer. But sometimes that means we're going to have to actually identify, so what is the norm? Very often, that's the dominant culture. That's the dominant cultural attitudes about things, everything from dress to language to how we perform binary genders to what is acceptable and what is not. To queer those means to push on those norms. I'm sure folks will then see that, well, that's ruffling feathers. <laughs> that can be dangerous. That can get me fired. And, and I think, I didn't necessarily write about this in the article, but I think that's an important dimension of this work too. There is a bit of risk at play, I think, when we're pushing on norms. But, but truly, that, that's got to be part of a program of queering whatever we, we happen to be queering. That relationship between normalcy and queering is, is part of this, this sort of active verb, right? Queering. Um, querying CYC, querying teacher ed. And how do you go about that? I think, at least in a training program, for many folks coming to the table, particularly if they have dominant identities, it's helping them see that there are norms at play. That which they thought everyone knew about or was just a given, um, sometimes we just call this the hidden curriculum. It's actually from a program of the dominant culture. It's, it's kind of like the matrix moment, right? You're realizing that the matrix exists. I think that has to kind of be a starting point for our students, for um, even working with professionals and seeing, helping them see that there are norms at play. And if we haven't sort of set that as a foundation, I'm not sure we can get everyone on board even to start to queer things. Because to acknowledge that there is a dominant attitude around normalcy, how can we start to question that if we don't help folks see that that exists in the world? How can they see other possibilities or other experiences of living, other experiences of relationships, of romance, of gender presentation, of language, of documentation? How do we help them see that if they have not started to question or unpack how they have been socialized into what is normal? And so I sort of playfully call any of that work, which I think most people would just sort of see as like, that's a precursor for social justice work. But <laughs> I think of, you know, I mean, it's from my own queer lens. I think all of that's queering. I don't think you necessarily have to be a queer person to queer something. Um, if we are working on 
pushing on normalcy. That is, that's beautiful, queered work. I'm not sure everyone would agree with me on that, but. No, I'm sure not everyone would. Um, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful, beautifully framed understanding of queer beginning with, with the normal and then opening that up and really thinking of, of queering as a, as a verb, as opposed to a noun, as opposed to I am queer or they are queer or, you know, it's, it's, it's an action that one engages in when, when used in, in these contexts and beginning with the analysis of normalcy and where it shows up and how it shows up and how, ubiquitous it is and unquestioned it is and um and i think that you know the the playfulness that that you you know you talked about with you know the parenthetical ed i think the playfulness is such an inviting way to to challenge normalcy right the the, the fingernail polish, the dangling earnings, <clears throat> the the construction of language, and in your article you talk about aesthetics, and this this perhaps returns to this idea of corporality. It perhaps returns to the idea of of the body of of performance. <clears throat> you know, aesthetics is something that we rarely talk about in teacher education, or we rarely talk about in in child and youth care. Um, and just as we start to move towards ending this conversation that we're having today with the sincere hopes that we have more, I, I wonder if you could talk a, a little bit about how one might use the idea of aesthetics as a way to challenge and transform um, in, the, in the classroom or in, in child and youth care practice. Right. Yeah. And I, I just want to pick up really quickly on something that you said. It just, it made me think about, you know, that, that sort of playfulness in doing queered work in queering whatever context we find ourselves in. I really do see this as a kind of antidote to what I think is such a, an awful danger. It's so necessary for us to report out and remind folks that queer people are under attack today and have been historically but there is a danger to being out. But I would hate for that to always be the narrative that our sort of damaged narratives that, that there's, if we're always just reporting out about how tough queer people have it. And I'm not trying to discount that. I'm just trying to say, might there be something else that we, we put out into the world as a kind of program for queering CYC or queering teacher ed that is not perpetuating this idea that queerness sometimes somehow also needs to be seen as suffering. A way to get at that might be, so what is the sort of aesthetic quality to queering whatever our work is? You know, I, I love the word cute. <laughs> how, do, <laughs> how do we make it cute? Uh, and I don't mean like the sort of like, you know, the total read of like, that's cute. Um, I don't mean... <laughs> <laughs> Although that could perhaps be a kind of aesthetical practice that we indeed, indeed. as we sharpen our claws to <laughs> make sure that our students and our practitioners are being their best self. That aside, how do we make it cute? And you know, I'll perhaps one of the last things I'll talk about then is you know, I it, to kind of tie this sort of corporal reality, or I love highlighting the reality of corporal reality. 
you know, I, I feel most free in my classroom. I feel, I don't feel like I can be my full self in, in the grocery line, in, you know, at the farmer's market, um, in the airport. I don't feel like I can be who I am. I feel like there's too many pressures. Sometimes I need to navigate, is it dangerous to not, you know, to, to, to not be fully who I am. But in my classroom, I feel like I can bring my full corporeal self. I can explore what it means to be out. And so there's a kind of pedagogical freedom that I feel in my classroom and in my practice as a professor. And there's a kind of aesthetic that emerges from that. And it's, it's unique to me. It's a, perhaps some, some people might call this style. And, and I think there's something then very queer about the, that aesthetic. It's not that, that word cute. <laughs> I, I think like, how do we, if we're queering work, how do we still have it remain, it retain its cuteness, you know? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Maybe maybe cute is too far of a Western concept, or uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm borrowing the Japanese uh, idea of kawaii. Um, but I, I I I agree. I don't think we've really explored cuteness <laughs> in pedagogy, or you know, the sort of like queer aesthetics. You know, I must acknowledge here too. I think aesthetics is so loaded because it is sort of culturally, mm-hmm. uh, it's culturally bound. Um, and for some, what might be an ideal aesthetic is actually a very hurtful aesthetic, et cetera. But there is a kind of cuteness. There's a kind of style. There's a kind of aesthetic to our work when we're pushing on normalcy that I would love to, to be in conversation with folks about. I would love to keep exploring that. Um, because at the end of the day, if we are maintaining queer aesthetics in our work, that's also how we sustain our identities. We, when, we, when we maintain our queer aesthetics in our work, maybe it's on a very simple level, like when we maintain wearing our fabulous sartorial realness, you know, <laughs> when, when we show up to work um, fully, fully realized as who we are with our style, whatever that means for us, that is a way that we are querying norms um, in our context. And um, I think that's probably closest to, to what I was starting to write about around aesthetics in the article. It was part of the editing process and, and you know, the back and forth, the editing process and giving feedback, and then you pushing back and saying, no, this, no, this, this, this is the aesthetic of what I'm doing. This is, this is the essence of what I'm doing. Those notes, uh, I, I'm not going to accept. And, and I, and I think that that, you know, for me as, as, you know, someone who was in collaboration with you, um, as, as you were writing, um, it's, it, it's, it's such a beautiful invitation to constantly reconsider how normalcy shows up, you know, in, in academia, in text, in, in journal publishing, in my own life. And, and so, you know, I really appreciated that. I appreciate it when, when you refused <laughs> like no i'm not changing that and i was like yes thank you thank you for 
for holding that that mirror up um because that's that's the only way things are going to change yeah that so thank you for calling me out because being a brat (laughs) (laughs) but such a cute brat (laughs) but i was trying to do it cutely yes um (laughs) and and, you know that's look i i'm trying to remain who i am and and Mm -hmm. do as as i i want to do it you know and and, and, you know, there's a certain risk there, you know, and, and there's a risk that the editorial team might be like, yeah, um, we don't accept that. And that's okay. But I, I hope you also, and I, let me tell you that from the editorial team to the copy editor who was just wonderful and so on it and gracious, you know, cause y'all saw, like, I, I responded to everything. <laughs> and, like and and you know Longoria's feedback was like and here is a very long paragraph <laughs> in the, the text markup of my response to that and because yeah I am I was trying to maintain a sort of aesthetic you know a, a sort of aesthetic quality to to the article and and you know some of it I should say this the the article is kind of it's 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 a snapshot of where I was in my life and my career at that time. And so I definitely took up the feedback, but when I read through the article, I'm happy with it. And it Mm. feels like, it feels like me, it feels like I wrote it. And, um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I guess my advice to academics, my advice to grad students, you know, it's, I want to be clear. I was a brat, (laughs) (laughs) But I also defended each of my choices. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you all as the editorial team can accept it or not. And my advice to writers, to grad students, to academics is, you know, if, if you have a strong vision, and, and I wish that upon all writing, you know, have a strong vision about how you want the article to go out into the world. And, but make sure you have a good rationale, you know, at least one that you're comfortable with, that you're willing to go to the mat for. And, yeah, I, I, um, it, it means that of of the things that I've written recently, I'm, I'm pretty darn proud of this article and the special issue. I hope the copy editor isn't too upset with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's a, that's a whole other offline conversation, which we can have some other day, Longoria. But, but I think your article is is wonderful. Um, I, it's a really, it's a beautifully written piece. It's a provocative piece. Um. And it, and and it, you know, there's there's a lot of invitation for wide considerations uh, within the piece. So I encourage everyone to to read it. And I want to thank you, a thank you for writing it, but thank you as well so so much for taking the time to have this wonderful conversation with me today. Of course, thank you, Wolfgang. You're welcome. And I also want to let everyone know that uh, Longoria just recently published a book called. Creating a Home in Schools, Sustaining Identities for Black, Indigenous, and Teachers of Color. Well, co co authored the book, and it is available in Canada and the US ebook or, or hard copy. And so I encourage people to check it out. And maybe after I have the chance to read it, you can come back and we can talk about that book some other day. That would be lovely. All right. Bye bye for now. Yeah.